Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to another class on Revelation. This is, I don't know, it's on the podcast, I think it's like episode 24, maybe? <laughs> it feels like it, right? I don't know. It is what it is. I'll know it when I post it. That's what it comes down to. Um, so good morning to everybody. Um, we're continuing in chapter 8 of Revelation. If you, uh, The sheet has the number 9 up in the top corner. There are some more up here on the table if you need one. Uh, so help yourself to those. We'll start off as usual with Q&A. Any questions that you have for me about anything going on? We're not going on. Anybody else need a sheet? Guess not. Thank you, John. No questions. Nothing. Everybody's happy. You want to know about James? Okay. Mark. So, if you read the book of James, I mean, the, the question is really about James and Luther and kind of what their relationship with one another was. Luther, I think it's probably best to say that Luther struggled with James. Um, James is a, is a challenging book because James, a lot of what he's talking about is works related. And, and it's a pretty subtle argument that he makes. And so I think what Luther struggled with mostly was that if you, if you, if James was like too much of the center of your theology, then it would lead you into a works righteousness. That is the idea that you're made righteous by what you do as opposed to what Christ did. Um, I think if you read James closely, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is our faith, a, a, a true faith and trust in God naturally leads to works. But, but the way James talks about it, those two are so tightly bound together that it's hard to see that argument necessarily. And I think that's where Luther struggled a little bit. But, but Luther didn't reject it or anything like that. It's just it was, it was a book that he struggled with a little bit. And I think understandably so. Is James, is that where he said faith without Faith without works is, is dead. dead. Yes, that's where that comes from. Yeah, in fact, we heard that in worship last week. Yeah, yeah so... So, and, and that was one of those things where, you know, it's like, okay, but understand the order of things here, that our works are a response to our faith, and, and therefore they come after our justification. So we, there's two big church works words at play here, okay? Well, your sermon today was on... Uh, humility. Humility. Which is, which is, again, following after. How the, and, devil, how the devil would use that yes. in that very same way. Right, right. <laughs> So two, two big things playing here, right? Justification and sanctification, okay? Justification, and the easy way to remember that is just as if I'd never sinned. Our justification comes in a moment, at our baptism most commonly, as, as we are brought into the family of God. And we are at that moment grabbed by God, made part of the family, absolutely assured of our salvation. But sanctification is a process that happens from that moment of justification for the rest of your life. And it's the process by which we are made holy by the Holy Spirit. And so it's that process of change that then follows the justification that we receive, okay? 
And, and I think a lot of what James is talking about is the sanctification. He's talking about, okay, cool, you've come, the, the Holy Spirit has brought you to faith. You trust in God and in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You know that you're saved. What does that mean for me now as I live out my life as a Christian? What does that look like? And if my faith really is in Jesus Christ, then what's that going to lead me to do? It's going to lead me to, um, you know, be kind to my neighbors, to um, do acts of service. It's going to lead me to be humble and not proud. It's going to lead me to pray rightly, all that kind of stuff. And that's where James is, is working. And it's really different, for example, than a book like Romans, where Paul is talking about this whole process of how we come to faith. So that, does that make sense? It's just it's sort of focusing on a different area. What else did you want to say, Pastor? Well, the, the, the epistle lesson that I read this morning is not very subtle. Mm -mm. No, it isn't. It isn't. Yeah, and and he James where he's he's real blunt, brutally blunt. Yeah, yeah, and today is one of them. Okay, thank you. Good question. What else? Any other thoughts, questions? I will, I'll tell y'all, just in terms of COVID stuff, um, I think we peaked at about twenty-seven thousand active cases a few weeks ago. Last time I looked, which I think was Saturday's report we were at about 16,000. So the numbers are slowly retreating, and I'm hopeful that means that we're on the back end of the curve for Delta. And, and you know, we'll see. Hopeful. Any other questions? Okay. That's not good. It's upside down. Um, our devotion for today is taken from John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He went to his own people, and his own people didn't accept him. However, he gave the right to become God's children to everyone who believed in him. And the title of this is Becoming God's Children. To everyone who believes in Christ, God offers the privilege of becoming his children. And yet, this greatest of all offers is despised, ridiculed, and laughed at by the blind and condemned people of this world. In addition, God's offer is abused and even regarded as blasphemy. Although those who confess his name and trust his words are children of God, they're executed as though they were children of the devil, blasphemers and revolutionaries. The religious leaders did the same to Christ, God's only son. They accused him of stirring up trouble among the people, of keeping the people from paying taxes to the emperor, and of claiming to be the son of God. Sometimes the devil attacks devout Christians so fiercely with his flaming arrows that they forget about the endless glory that they have as God's children. They begin thinking the opposite. They wonder if God has forgotten about them, abandoned them, or thrown them so far away that he can't see them anymore. Our faith is still very weak and cold. If our faith were as strong and steady as it should be, we would practically die from sheer joy. But we praise God because we know that even those who have only a little faith are also children of God. That's why Christ said, don't be afraid, little flock. So we always need to pray with the apostles, give us more faith. And pray with the man in the book of Mark who cried out, I believe, help my lack of faith. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you for gathering us together uh, as your children and gathering us around your word that we might be built up through it and, uh, and blessed by it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us today as we study your word, that you would guide and lead us in our discussion, that all of it would, uh, would lead us to a better understanding of who you are and of the amazing gift of salvation that you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. So be with us as we study, we pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send this guy around again because I think we've had people come in who haven't hit it. How are you, Paul? Good. You guys sit right here so I can ask you all the questions. <laughs> and and uh, Jeannie is very happy to see you. <laughs> She's happy to show you. <laughs> all right. We are in Revelation chapter 8. Um, and I, I think we... I mean, wow, we got through like five questions last time? Amazing. Um, uh, just a reminder... The, we spent time in the previous lesson kind of in this interlude. Chapter 7 was, you know, sort of we had all these breaking of the seals leading up. And then chapter 7, all of a sudden you get these two competing visions. Uh, one of those visions, a picture of the church militant. That is the church that's carrying out God's mission. And then also the church triumphant, the saints of heaven. We saw them under the altar waiting for the, the you know, finality of all of that. Um, so in the book of Revelation, what happens is we're kind of rotating around this event of the end of time. And we get to see it from three different perspectives. And, and one of the literature kind of tools that, that John uses as he writes this is that there's three different sets of, of metaphors of what's going on as we get these different views of the end of time. So we've had this unsealing of you know the seven seals that secured the scroll of history so we're going to start rotating now as the seventh seal is removed we're going to see this series of judgments against fallen man from a different perspective and instead of seals now it's going to be the sounding of trumpets that will be kind of the marker as we kind of progress through it but remember that we're circling around the same event okay if if you don't if there's one thing that you've got to understand about revelation it's that because if you don't get that revelation is a very confusing book you know the world ends three times and it's just it doesn't make any sense so um let's go ahead i'm going to read revelation chapter 8 so we've got it fresh in our heads and then we'll jump into the questions revelation 8 when the lamb opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there appeared hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked and I saw, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Here ends the reading. Observations, thoughts, aha moments. Anything? A lot of blood and gore in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, I mean, this is a pretty dark description of stuff going on, isn't it? A lot of thirds. We talked about that last time. Anything else? Old Testament with a lot of blood. Yeah, well, that's true. Good and bad, right? Good and bad, though. Because, you know, blood also became the means of atonement, right? You remember Moses throws the blood on the altar and on the people, and that becomes, you know, the means of atonement. Not just lambs, but they were killing bulls. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of blood there. Yeah, exactly. True. What else? Any other observations? Lots of fire. A lot of fire. Brimstone. <laughs> kind of make you worry about the sounds of trumpets. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, they left us hanging there. There's going to be three more. <laughs> there's three? Yeah, right. We'll get into that in Chapter 9. I'm a fire I'd like to know what Wormwood is. We, we'll get into Wormwood. Yeah. We will talk about that. Yeah. We heard about that. Too. It's a character in the book. <laughs> <laughs> that did come up today, right? Wormwood is, if you haven't heard already in the sermon, I talk about C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fabulous book, by the way. Um, it's dense. I mean, you've got to really find a good, quiet place to read it. But um, it is fabulous. This, the book, if you don't know, the book is, a, is about, it's a series of letters. Um, it's a, a satirical novel written by a senior demon named Screwtape. And he's sending letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a newly minted demon who's been given a patient to keep out of God's hands. Yeah, Earl. My question is, why did uh, the Lord only destroy a third of the earth? Yeah. <laughs> we will get into that, yeah. yeah. Why is it only a third? What's going on? I mean, in different sects, like the mountain and then the sea. Right, the right, and it's only a third. And, and the, I think... I'll get back to screw tape in a second. The the reason for that is the, there's a there's a sense in which all of this destruction is limited by God, that He's kind of holding back the the floodwaters, if you want to call it that, and He's not allowing everything to just be wiped out. So there's a there's kind of a sense in which you've got this warning that God really is who He says He is, and He really is coming back, and people can maybe admit, okay, all this stuff is real. But there's going to come a point in time where basically that's no longer possible. 
And so Jesus talks about it a lot. You know, he says, that, you know, there's going to be signs and wonders and all this kind of stuff going on. And that's how you know the end is coming. And, and so in, in some way, all of that, I think, is about God nudging people to confess and to believe in him, that he really is who he says he is, and that he really is God and he really is in charge. Um, and so all this chaos that comes is held back a little bit so that people can look around and go, oh, well, all that stuff was real. You know, I think that's what's going on. So back to screw tape. Um, Wormwood is the nephew of the senior demon. And, and screw tape sends these letters to him explaining the ways that he can go about pulling this guy away from God and away from his faith. And it's, it's an amazing kind of insight into the stupid, subtle ways that Satan works to kind of wedge in there and, and find some way to separate you from God. So I highly recommend that, and Mere Christianity, too, is another great one that C.S. Lewis wrote. Well, C.S. Lewis was, a, was kind of a non-believer, too. He was an atheist who came to faith, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> he, he brings a really unique that's perspective. That's an even more interesting right. story. Right, right. Paul Harvey had the deal on when I was listening to him way back when. He said, if I were the devil. Oh, I've heard that one. It's good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would do just I didn't write it down. The screw tape letters. Screw tape. Okay. Um, we're, we're, we talked about sevens. Um, you know, there's a lot of sevens going on in Revelation, and we kind of went back to Joshua and read about Jericho and all that business and the sevens going on. We talked a lot about baptism last week. I don't remember how we got on that, but it was a great discussion. Um, so we're, I think we're up to number six. Um, does that sound right to y'all? Four. Whoa. Okay. We weren't nearly as productive as I thought. Okay. Somebody look up um, Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, that, I don't think we need to read the whole thing. I think that's pretty long. Um, <laughs> Gog and Magog. Okay. <laughs> chapter 38 of Ezekiel is another one of these apocalyptic pieces of literature. So you remember we talked about the fact that Revelation is, is a particular kind of literature um, called apocalyptic literature, which means revelatory or, or revealing something. Um, Ezekiel has this section that is also using apocalyptic literature. That is, it's using symbols, it's using images to make its point. And it describes this last great struggle between the forces of evil and God's people. So Gog is the symbolic leader of the evil forces. And um, Magog is the, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy and all this business going on. Um, I think if I read it to you, your heads might explode. <laughs> it's 23 verses worth. So... I will leave that as an exercise for the reader to go back and read Ezekiel 38. Understand that a lot of the same things that we've been learning about how to read Revelation apply to this too. Okay, um, But as you get toward the end of it, uh, Ezekiel 38 verse 22 um, talks about how God will execute judgment on, I mean how God, G-O-D, will execute judgment on Gog, G-O-G, 
With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will reign upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So how is God executing judgment on Gog first? Plague and bloodshed. Say it again. Plague and bloodshed. Plague and bloodshed. Pestilence. Um, pouring down torrents of rain, hailstones, burning sulfur, all this stuff falling from the sky. Gog depends on his troops. And this is how he's wiping them out. Trend says troops. <laughs> okay, where? And what, what verse? It's the very same thing. Down on him and his troops. And his troops, okay. So yeah, his hordes or troops. Yeah, yeah exactly. Army. So how does that compare to the first angel's plague in Revelation 8, verse 7? Pretty close. <laughs> the first angel blew his trumpet. There followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And again, the, 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 what we're getting at here is the, the notion that all this stuff that John's writing in Revelation is not new stuff. <clears throat> Ezekiel's writing hundreds of years before Jesus. And yet he's been given similar visions about how things end. And so there's this consistency between what's happening in Revelation and what's described elsewhere in Scripture. Okay, That's really the point. Amos. <laughs> the... Um, the, the guy who wrote the um, commentary on Amos is um, Dr. Reed Lessing, um, who was one of my professors at the seminary and, and was also my advisor going through the seminary. He, he talks about Amos as restore the roar. That Amos, who's this herdsman and actually a dresser of fig trees, gets lifted up out of obscurity and, and has made this prophet in front of everybody. And it's like God all of a sudden roaring again among the people. But Amos sees a vision of God's judgments against fallen man in the last days. So somebody look up Amos chapter 7 verse 4 and let's look at one of those. This is what the sovereign Lord shows me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great and devoured the land. Ooh. Sound familiar? Again, a judgment by fire that devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Revelation 8.8, 8, something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. Again, we get these echoes from Old Testament prophecy through John and the revelation that's given to him by Jesus. Thoughts on that? Questions? Why a third? Why a third? Why a third? Let me see. Do we get that as a specific question? <laughs> no. All right. So. For the moment. Yeah. Yeah. We still got three more to go, right? Yeah. And they said it was going to be serious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see here. I'm looking to see if there's anything in my cheat sheet. I mean the... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, 
chapter 6, verse 8. Um, in chapter 6, verse 8, a pale horse, remember the horde, the, the writer's name was Death, Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth um, to kill with a sword and famine, pestilence by wild beasts. Um, so the, the point that's made here in the study Bible is a fourth of the earth, extensive, but it's still only the beginning. And I, I think, again, also in Revelation 8, and again, we're circling back around, we're back to the same event, okay? A third, meaning there's a lot going on here, but it's just the beginning, that there's more coming, okay? So it's, again, it emphasizes that the, the destruction is still limited at this point, even though it's awful. Does that make sense? But third of earth would be a big call. Be a lot. Yeah. Two thirds is left, though. You just hope you're not in that third. <laughs> but, but the whole earth is going to be destroyed eventually. Eventually. Yes. Yes. Um, all right. Question number six What does the Lord threaten to do to his people in Jeremiah 9 15? If somebody would look that up. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. Whoa. Nice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who, who is this people that he's talking about? Yeah, who is he? Israel? Um, Israel. Let's see here. No, it's not Israel. Um so who is the man so wise he can understand this? I'm back to Jeremiah 9.12. To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I sat before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their father taught them, therefore... All the rest of it. So who in Jeremiah, who God is speaking against, is those people who had this amazing revelation of who God is and then came into the promised land and went, oh, this is pretty cool. Hey, look at all these cool other gods that they worshiped before. That's awesome. Let's check them out. And they started worshiping the other gods that had been in the land before they came. And and. You know, God is described in Exodus as a jealous God. He's not impressed when we wander off after other gods and seek out their ways. And so who he's speaking against here are those who have wandered away from God and chosen to worship false gods and broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the outcome of that is predictably bad. Okay? So... I mean, how does salvation work is really what this comes down to. If I trust in Jesus Christ, who took the punishment for all my sins and died on the cross so that I could stand before God on the last day and be covered by Christ's righteousness so that God looks at me and all he sees is Christ, that's the means of salvation. If I reject that, if I say, I don't want your help, I don't, I don't need what you're offering. I'm not looking for your assistance with salvation. I can do this myself. 
then you've lost that and you're going to stand before God on the last day because, by the way, God actually is God. And you're going to stand before him and what do you have to offer? Well, uh, all this great stuff that I did. That's not going to work. Because Scripture tells us that if you fail in any point of the law, you are liable for all of it. So God's going to go, eh, you think you did some great stuff, but uh, let's talk about, I don't know, there's ten things we could talk about. Have you had other gods? Because you didn't respect the one who came to you and offered you salvation, so yes, you did. And we can go from there. It's one of the, the uh, I think, most powerful things about confirmation class is walking through the meanings of the Ten Commandments and understanding how we've broken every one of them repeatedly and what that means. Because if you break the commandments, somebody's got to be punished. I mean, we have a just God. He's going to punish sin. So there's two possibilities. One is you come before God and tell Him that you're not, that you're perfect. You're not. Or you come before God and say, Jesus. And the, and the punishment has already been made. And the salvation has been given freely. And you're covered with Christ's righteousness. And you're in. <laughs> That's it. There's two options. You can chase after other gods. You're going to just reject the gift that God has given you. The outcome of that is predictably bad. Because you're going to try and stand on your own merits and you don't have any merits to stand on. And we have a just God who's going to punish sin. And he's either going to do it to his son Jesus Christ and you're going to believe that and trust in him and be saved or you're going to be on it, held to account. Judy. But if you have a forgiven someone... That's the toughest sentence in the whole Bible. So, to me, the most terrifying petition in the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our trespasses. Which, if you really stop for a second and think about what that's saying, is saying, hey, God, listen, can you forgive me the same way I forgive everybody else? And if you think about that for a second, that's terrifying. I'm really bad at that. And I really don't forgive people all that well. And so God basically says to us, hey, you know, you need to forgive other people the way I've forgiven you. And if you stop and think for a minute about what God has done for you, that's a very humbling moment to realize what he's forgiven you and what you have failed to forgive someone else. Now, is that an unforgivable sin, though? No. But, Pastor? Yes. Once you believe in Jesus in your heart, yeah. God does not see any of these sins. They're right. all blocked. Right. So when you stand before God, you're an innocent soul of God, and your right. answer is saying, I right. believe in Jesus Christ. That's your answer. Right. That's your yeah. answer. The answer before God is one word, Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And, and so, back to this point, you're... Inability to forgive somebody, is that fatal in terms of salvation? No, that too is, is forgivable. There's only one unforgivable sin. Now, Ephesians talks about it as the sin against the Holy Spirit, and everybody goes, what the heck is that? 
Here's what it is. It is to reject the gift of salvation given to you by Jesus Christ. And, and what that means to say it's the, it's, the, it's the sin against the Holy Spirit is to say, when God comes to you with his word and says, I have sent my son Jesus Christ to die for you so that you might be saved. Believe in it. That's the Spirit speaking through a means of grace, the Word. And to sin against the Holy Spirit is to go, screw you, I don't need your help. It is to reject the gift of salvation that Christ has offered. That's the only fatal sin. It's the only way to not be forgiven is to reject the forgiveness that's being given to you, which sounds very circular. But it's absolutely true. God says, hey, free of charge. Here's the forgiveness for all of your sins. And you go, I don't need that. Guess what? You've rejected the forgiveness of all your sins. And I'm sorry, I may have said this before. The outcome of that is predictably bad. <laughs> right? Okay. Any other thoughts? Yeah. You're absolutely right. That one can be forgiven too. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing, though, is you go you read through the Old Testament. Yeah. And the Jewish nation repeatedly, yes. they, they, God, God blesses them and they get very successful and yeah. everything's rolling along. And then all of a sudden, they're kind of neglecting and he gets angry. Yeah, he does. And they, they go out and they. They have to go work for somebody else for about 200 years, and then he'll bring them back again. And it's just, it's, it just rolls through the whole, the whole, the which, whole testament. Which is very comforting to me because I'm just as stupid. <laughs> John. It's probably more true with us as Americans, but there's always that part of us that says, I've got to pay for it myself. Oh, absolutely. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's even true, well, I, I know it's even true of our salvation. Yeah. Because there are a number of Protestant and non-Protestant denominations that have that word righteousness yeah. as one of their key uh, doctrines. Yeah. Yeah, it's exa exactly right. It, it's if you want to be saved, then you must, whatever it is. And, and that's where they've gone off the rails. Because <coughs> I think I've said it before in a sermon, but every other religion in the world I mean we'll set aside the differences between Christian religions but every other religion in the world says you must do right mm. Buddhism has things that they prescribe that you've got to do Hinduism does Zoroastrianism does um, Islam absolutely does it's got the five pillars that you have to follow and all this kind of stuff the, the only way to be saved is to do these things Christianity by contrast is the only one that says done already done by Jesus Christ. Now, you know, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters screw it up because they, they basically mix up the order of things. Because, and, and now we're back to our conversation about James. You know, James is talking about all the stuff that we ought to do, but he's talking about it in the context of people who've already come to faith. And, and, and so is, is the stuff we do important? Yeah, sure it is. Because we're, we're guided and we're led by our faith and it's all in response to, you know, this is back to our prayer thing too. I mean, our forgiveness thing too, right? Our forgiveness is conditioned on the forgiveness that God has already given to us. Our works are, are moved and created by the faith that has already been given to us. 
but but what happens is some people get the cart before the horse and they go if you want to be saved you've got to live a good life and not drink alcohol or or you know observe these days and and festivals and whatever it is paul writes about a lot of that stuff in colossians he basically squishes all that stuff and he's like no hang on (laughs) all the stuff that has to be done for you to be saved has already been done jesus did that as a result, you are free now to go do some good stuff. And, and, and essentially what he's getting at is this. And this is Ephesians 2.10. It's the verse that we always leave off, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10 is, you are saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God so that you can't boast. It's nothing you did. You've been saved by grace. For we, and this is verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jesus isn't against good works by any means, but those things happen after our justification. We are brought to faith, and then the Holy Spirit says, cool, go do some stuff. <laughs> and, and in that context where the Holy Spirit is leading us and guiding us, and th- those, that's what a good work is. Absent the Holy Spirit's involvement, not a good work. I don't care how nice it seems. I don't care how wonderful from a worldly perspective it is. If it's not moved by the Holy Spirit and in the context of Christianity and our, and our Christian faith, that's not a good work. Even if it looks cool to us. Is that weird? Isn't that strange? But in the context of our faith, moved by the Holy Spirit, that's a good work. Everything else is like dirty rags, which, by the way, Accurately translated as a much nastier thing. Um, yeah, scubala. We can look that up someday. I think it's kind of interesting. It's how long God gives us chances. You know, it just seems like 200 years or whatever before he finally puts his foot down or whatever. And I'm always surprised. He's pretty patient. You know, we always think, oh, that parent should have taken care of it right then. No, no. Well, God doesn't even do it right then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But I noticed that in a lot of things. I often think God spends a lot of time looking at me shaking his head going, oh my God, he did it again. <laughs> what a moron. <laughs> How could you do that? All right, I'll forgive you again. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> We're on 6A. Um, so what does the Lord threaten to do to his people? I will feed this people bitter food. I will give them poisonous water to drink. Why? And we went back because they've forsaken my law. They haven't obeyed my voice. They've stubbornly followed their own hearts. They've gone after the Baals. They're idolaters is what it comes down to. Okay. So why do you think the Lord sends the plague? We're getting to your stuff here now. <laughs> why do you think the Lord sends the plague of wormwood in Revelation 8 through 10? 8, through, or eight, ten through 11. So let's look at that again. Uh, the third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers, on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water. Um, so Wormwood is a bitter, poisonous herb. Okay, it's a thing, it exists. Um, And particularly along streams where it grows, it can make the water poison. Okay, tastes very, very bitter. Um, So 
there's a couple of things going on here. One is wormwood just referring to that herb that actually exists. But there's something else happening here that's kind of interesting. And it sort of plays off of this notion that God exists outside of time and that the way we perceive and understand time isn't necessarily the same as what Scripture understands and perceives. Because the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and the name of that star is Wormwood. Um, there are scholars out there who see a parallel going on here between this description of a star falling from heaven and Jesus seeing Satan falling from heaven like lightning. So, I, I don't... I don't, I don't, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to make a firm statement one way or the other as to whether that's what's going on here, but I think it's interesting at least. And, and it is consistent with a lot of what we're going to see as we continue going through Revelation, and that is history in Revelation gets squished down and readjusted in terms of time frames. And, and what you see is, there's a phrase that we're going to bump into later, time, time and a half, and a time. There's all this kind of weird stuff about time descriptions. But what I think is happening is that as Revelation is swirling around this episode of the end of the world, it's also picking up echoes of historical events and things that have happened. And, and particularly, in this case, a heavenly thing where Satan um, rises up against God and gets thrown out of heaven it makes sense to me that that would be a thing that, that you know, becomes part of this overall story, that Satan's expulsion from heaven is a part of everything that leads up to the end of the world and Judgment Day. And so I don't think it's out, out of, it's not like totally out of left field to say that there's some, there's some echoing going on here between Satan's expulsion, what Jesus saw, and now what's happening as the angels come through, okay? Um, there's going to be some other stuff. There's a, there's a section, a couple of chapters down here, where we're going to get the entire life of Jesus squished down into one verse. And it's one of those things where, like, blink and you'll miss it. <laughs> but but as you slow down and look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, I see what's going on here. And it has to do with a pregnant woman giving birth and all this kind of stuff. But we'll get there. Um, so So why do you think that the Lord has sent this plague of Wormwood in Revelation. We know why it happened in Jeremiah, right? Or in, uh, yeah, Jeremiah. Yeah, a lot of the same reasons, right? I mean, forsaking the law and following other gods. Exactly. All the same reasons, yeah. In fact, I might argue that what Jeremiah was talking about is just echoing again. And it's kind of like what you're saying, Mac. <laughs> you know, read the Old Testament. It's the same story over and over and over and over again. And so much about what happens in Revelation, guys, is, is not about like trying to lay out some roadmap of the exact events that will happen that we have to sort of decipher and figure out, ooh, what country is he talking about there? What country is that? Because I think all of it, is one of these things that's, that's sort of laid over a fallen, sinful world, and it's the same story that just plays out again and again and again. How many countries fit the description of Babylon? <clears throat> Lots. You know, was it the Roman Empire? People who read that first probably thought that. 
Was it the British Empire? Sun never sets on it. Eh, it might have been at, at one point in time, you know. Is it the United States? Some people would say it is now. You know, so, so a lot of it is in the context of a fallen sinful world, these storylines play out again and again and again. And so there's no sense trying to like pigeonhole a particular date and time for this stuff because, hey, I read in another book that it's not for us to know the dates and times. So, you know. And, and, and it could it be that the Holy Spirit wrote the book to begin with? And um, we must. 100%. <laughs> don't we have to believe that there is a Satan? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what yeah. this says. Yeah. That's what that falling star says. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, so. And, and not just here, but elsewhere in Scripture. Too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, so this just affirms if what we is taught. Satan, we yeah. are touching with the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're. So you're, he does exist. You're skating on thin ice at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've got this whole thing about wormwood and making the waters poison and all that kind of stuff. Let's remember I told you you gotta look at Exodus if you really want to understand what's going on. Well, let's go back to Exodus 15, verses 22 to 25, and see a different way that God acted. So Exodus 15, verse 22 to 25. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So how did God deliver his people in that passage? Yeah, it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? Right? So the condemnation comes in turning the water bitter. The salvation comes in turning the bitter water sweet. So God is acting through that. How is the, question number seven? How is the day of the Lord depicted in Isaiah 13, 9 through 10? What is the day of the Lord anyway? Yom Yahweh is how you say it in Hebrew. Um, Anybody want to take a stab at that? What is the day of the Lord? Yeah, I think that's probably the best understanding, his return. Um, it's, a, it's a phrase you bump into a lot, especially in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, and it becomes this shorthand for the return of Jesus. Even though it's coming from the Old Testament where folks, you know, you don't necessarily have the same context. By the way, <laughs> your best bet for understanding the Old Testament is to read it through the lens of the New Testament because it helps to highlight and emphasize things so that you can understand what they mean. The New Testament gives you a context to understand the Old Testament. And the day of the Lord suddenly makes more sense when you know who Jesus is and that he's coming back, okay? So Isaiah 13, 9 and 10, somebody want to read that? Wow. Sound familiar? Have we read that anywhere? 
cruel with wrath and fierce anger. The land is a desolation. Its sinners are destroyed within it. Stars of the heavens and their constellations won't give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon won't shed its light. Again, Revelation's not giving us new stuff. It's reiterating things that we've already read elsewhere, that have already been given to us and revealed to us. Why was the book of Revelation? So, I, I think probably the safest answer to that question is that in, in that time, this was written about 90 AD, okay? So we're, we're about 60 years removed from Jesus' life and his death and resurrection. And, and the Christian church had grown gangbusters in that time. And a Roman emperor had come to power who was ruthless in his persecution of Christians. And so Christians were in a place and in a situation where their the strength of their conviction was being tested sorely. The Roman officials would put you up, you know, they would, they would basically arrest you and bring you before a tribunal and demand that you disavow any faith in Christianity. And if you did not, that was it. You would be killed immediately. And so for Christians, in undergoing that kind of persecution, it was a very difficult time to live and to, and to live out their faith. And, and John was given this revelation by Jesus Christ to write as ultimately, I think, a word of comfort to them. To say, listen, this is hard. And, and that's correct and it's terrible. But you need to know that your faith is rightly placed and that Jesus Christ actually is who you think he is. And that in the end, despite all of this persecution that's going on, you will be saved and have eternal life. And so it's a word of encouragement to Christians who were under severe persecution to remind them of their faith and of what they had come to believe and to understand and to help kind of lift their perspective up to a longer, what I would call time horizon than maybe they were dealing with. They were looking at what was going on right now and it's sort of a reminder that God's perspective is eternity, not just your life right now. So it's, it's ultimately a book of comfort and, and a, an affirmation of our faith that it is correct and right. When these books are written, yeah. are they just given that book at that time? I mean, how is that set up? I don't understand how they... You mean the books of the Bible and how all that came? No, just Revelation. Okay. Whatever they're so, writing. Yeah. So Revelation was written probably as a codex, meaning a compiled sheaf of papyrus documents um, that would have then been distributed. So this was written by John on the on the island of Patmos. Um, it was distributed then to scribes who would copy it, who would make duplicates of it, and it got distributed to churches throughout the world. That's why I'm um, how it Yeah. So, so it relies, in the earliest days, it relies on, on copyists, basically, who sit down by hand and, and hand-scribe duplicates of it. And just that book, as far as they you know, because they weren't, yeah. it wasn't connected at that time. No, it wasn't. It was about, it was in, in what four hundred A.D. or so that it all kind of got brought together. Okay. Now, what happens is 
these have been distributed really, I mean, you know, some of these things were written within 10 years of Jesus' life. I mean, some of the earliest gospels come really, really quickly. And, and as the Christian church grows, these things get distributed, copied, replicated, sent around. People, you know, there's... Well, it's not just even that day or something. They had to travel places. Exactly, yeah. It was yeah. a long time in between. Yeah. And what, what happened was there, there became kind of this standard set of stuff that every Christian church was reading and, and that they were sharing with one another. And they were saying, this is, you know, this is some stuff that Mark wrote. You know, we know he was with Jesus and that's helpful. And Paul wrote this and he was called by... He, Actually, read a lot of Paul's stuff. He, he sort of lays out his credentials at the beginning of it. And, and so what happened was when you get to the council of, was it Nicaea that put all this stuff together? 435 AD, I think it is. As they come to put together the canon and say, this is the Bible. What they're looking at is what are the, what are the letters and the books that are being widely distributed among the Christian church that everybody agrees are inspired by God? Are, are you know of the Holy Spirit, and and that's where the Old Testament. I mean, is of a thing, and it's been meticulously maintained all through history. Right, the the Jewish scribes were fanatical about how they did that. There's all kinds of cool techniques and tricks for how they ensured that everything was letter perfect. Um, and we know it now as we look back, as we found copies of things. Um, the the Dead Sea Scrolls were an astonishing find. Because essentially the Jewish scribes were really meticulous about how they copied things, but they were also meticulous about how they destroyed things when they got worn out. And so when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in about the 50s, late 50s, I think it was, 57 or something like that, um, the, the earliest copy of the Old Testament that we had dated to about, what was it, about 1000 AD, 1100 AD, something like that. That was the earliest one because the Jewish scribes, when one got worn out, they destroyed it. I mean, they were really meticulous about it. So we had 1100 AD was the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had. We find these Dead Sea Scrolls. They're a thousand years older than that, which is a staggering amount of time when you start thinking about books. And, and among the things that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a copy of the book of Isaiah, or at least a chunk of it. And they and they look at oh they're like oh this is going to be interesting see how badly that got screwed up over a thousand years and so they laid them side by side and doggone it they weren't identical. Oh, that's what I'm so amazed. Right and I mean that's that's just a that's a miracle all by itself. So so we've got this confidence that what what has been brought forward as the Old Testament is has been thoroughly well transmitted, and then the New Testament then so what's happening we well, got. You know, Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, these get distributed around and there becomes a standard set of things that Christian churches were reading. And that, and that everybody was looking at each other going, yep, that's, that's totally given by God. It's consistent with everything else and that's cool. There's a handful of them, not many, there's a handful of them that were, that were not universal. Revelation is one of them, by the way. Uh, James is one of them, isn't it? Um, I'm trying to think. The Antilegoma. There's a well. The Apocrypha is a whole. Yeah, that's a whole different animal. This this intertestamental stuff between the Old and the New Testament. Um, there's a handful of them, but they were used by enough different churches, and they were sort of commonly recognized as as inspired that they were also included in it. 
The difference is this, and that's the, you've heard me talk about this before. There's two different categories of books in the Bible itself. There's homologumina, which means everybody was reading it and everybody said, yeah, that's totally inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's what's called the antilogomena, which is a handful of books that most people were reading, but not everybody. And, and so they're all in the canon. They're all in scripture. The difference between the two is there is no doctrine that is based purely out of an antilogomena book. So, for example, there's no doctrine in the church that, that finds its origin in Revelation, for example. Nothing. Revelation becomes supportive of the other stuff, but we don't draw new doctrine from it because it was not universal. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The earliest manuscripts, um, they don't have the punctuation of the capital letters and verses. It's just one letter after another. Yeah. And so it was a major undertaking to get the Bible the way that we look at it today. And, and a lot of that was King James and uh, his workings to get a set of scholars to translate it into English. Yeah. It's pretty amazing stuff. Luther did the German first, didn't he? Luther transformed uh, yeah. the Bible in German. In German, before the King James English. Before King yes, James. That's true. L Luther, by the way, the German language is what it is today because of Luther's Bible translation. Mm -hmm. he, he had a huge impact on the German language because he standardized a bunch of stuff in the way he did his translations. And that, as that Bible became sort of the, the standard in Germany, it affected the language. And the German language is what it is today because of Luther. Which is really cool. All right, now, good, we've wandered off the path. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll cover that again when we get back. Um, okay, next week is New Member Sunday, if you hadn't heard. Um, we're going to welcome like 20 plus new members, some of whom have been here for a little while, some of whom are brand new. Um, we will not have class next week, is what I'm getting at, because we're going to have a reception during the 930 hour in the fellowship hall. So, you're not off the hook. Come to church. Come to Bible study hour, but go down to the Life Center and meet some new people. And, and we'll have cake and, and punch and say hi to people and welcome them. And you'll get to know them and they'll get to know you, except for Ken and Donna. They're not coming on you. <laughs> They're out of town. I'm messing with them. Either way. Either way. Okay. All right. Good. Um, let's close with a prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you have done for us, for calling us to faith, for holding us in this faith that you have given to us, for helping us to see your son, Jesus Christ, for who he is and for the comfort that comes from knowing that. Um, we pray that as we go forth from here, you would guide and lead us in all that we do, that it might be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. We ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you two weeks from now.